All right, you good? Happy Sunday to you. If you're new, welcome to Citadel Square on this holiday weekend. You picked a great Sunday to join us. Uh, We are going to see the destruction of everything mankind holds dear in Revelation chapter 18. So if you got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. There should be a Bible around you somewhere in the pews, a black one. Turn all the way to your right. And uh, I was going to call this message the destruction of the happiest place on earth, but I thought, I don't know if that would be a good one. Revelation chapter 18. We are in the, I said this last week, uh, we are in the minutes before Christ's return. Aren't you ready for Revelation 19? Whew, man. Uh, God makes you wait a long time, doesn't he? Now, you know, 19 chapters, we've been waiting for Jesus to open the heavens and come down. Um, Last week, we looked at Revelation chapter 17. We're in another uh, biographical section of the book of Revelation where we're looking at the kingdom of the Antichrist. And last week, the kingdom of the Antichrist was described in the first three and a half years as being the center of false religion, uh, where the image of the kingdom of the Antichrist was in this image of a prostitute seated on a beast. And the name was Babylon, the mystery of Babylon, the the harlot of all the earth, the mother of all abominations. And we had this... um, this deconstruction of world religion as Satan now rises to power through the power of the Antichrist. Antichrist sets himself up in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God, and then squashes uh, all other world religions except the fact that they worship him. And that's the turning point in the last seven years of human history. Well, as we've been looking at Antichrist's kingdom, we're going to look today not at this woman seated on the beast, but we're going to look at a city. And we're going to look at the city of Babylon. Uh, And this has been uh, prophesied really throughout your Old Testament. The the idea of the city shows up very, and the very first place it shows up in your Bible is in the uh, person of Cain. You remember Cain? Cain kills Abel. And then God says, you're going to be a wanderer on the earth. And Cain Cain says, this, my punishment is too much for me to bear. And God says, nobody will kill you, I promise. I'm going to put a mark on you. And the first thing Cain does is not be a wanderer on the earth, but the first thing he does is have have a kid, build a city, and name the city after his kid, uh, which is in direct opposition to what God is calling Cain to do. So as you open up your Bible and you move through really the first... 11 chapters and into the the person of Abraham in Genesis, you see several things happening. All along the way in the beginning chapters of of Genesis, you see things like uh, art, architecture, commerce, uh, agriculture, um, the creation of musical instruments. Uh, The arts are all on the increase. Mankind and his creativity is creating all of this world without God. But at the same time, as you watch arts and industry and commerce and agriculture and uh, the arts and music and beauty on the increase, you watch the morality of man continue to drop all the way through. So as you move through the beginning of your Bible, when it comes to God's people, You have a contrast between God's people who are walking with him as sojourners, and then you have the contrast between uh, God's, uh, not God's people, the un, I don't know what do you call them, non-God's people, write that down, that's good, Uh, and what they do without God is begin to build the city. They begin to build a place where they find their security and their comfort and their well-being and their power and their strength. So as you move from Cain and Cain's desire to build the city, the next time the city shows up is in Genesis chapter 11. 
where mankind rallies together and says, let us build a city with a tower and its name and a name and its tower reaching into the heavens. And you know at that point, God comes down and he disperses mankind all over the earth. The next time the city shows up is with Abraham and Lot. Lot pitches his tents and moves toward a city called what? Sodom and Gomorrah. And we see what happens to that city. And and this theme of the city continues throughout your Bible. The next time you see a city is in Abraham's life where Abraham builds and uh, buys a grave plot to bury his wife. And he buys it from the leaders of a city. It's the only piece of property that Abraham has when he dies. Well, the beginning themes of the city show up in the book of Genesis. The ending theme of the city... Uh, raised up in its opposition against God shows up here in Revelation chapter 18. So this is a city that during the last three and a half years of time on earth will be the most luxurious, economically prosperous, and profitable place on the earth. It will be the height of everything mankind desires. It's in a sense, it's an Eden without God under the authority of Satan himself and the Antichrist. And what you're going to see in Revelation chapter 18 is the complete destruction of this place that gives mankind every possible thing he wants during his time on earth. And all of it is going to be done through this commercial economic engine empowered by Satan himself. That's Revelation chapter 18. So you're going to see some very important themes for us that we are going to take away from a chapter like this, uh, as I'll get to sort of at the end. But let's jump in because we got a lot of verses to get through here. Let's uh, pray, ask God for his grace, and see what he would teach us here from this text. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gathered church here where we get a chance to pray and to sing and to speak the truth of God, to encourage our hearts. And Father, as we come in here this morning, I pray for great illumination to this text, that the minds and hearts of the people in this room would see things about themselves and about you that perhaps they've never seen before, that for those who come in and are wrestling with the themes of this text, that you would give them great confidence and courage through the person and work of Jesus, that we as a church would live life during our time on this earth and in this world in faith, that you would give us eyes of faith to understand the the jobs and the callings and the places you've called us and that you would disentangle our hearts from the world system. Would you help us to live with eyes full of faith and hope and confidence that uh, you have not left us, but one day you will bring us to yourself. So, Father, we ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. And the church said, amen. Revelation 18, let's go. 18, verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. Now, last week, John had an interpreting angel to show and explain to him the mystery of Babylon and the prostitute. Here we have another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And you've seen this contrast between light and dark in these last several chapters of the book of Revelation. You remember that darkness fell upon the throne of the beast back in Revelation chapter 16. And now you've had these angels flying in heaven proclaiming the truth about the gospel message. And this has begun all the way back uh, in Revelation 14. And you'll see another message that's similar to those three angels that we saw in Revelation 14 here in this chapter as well. 
The earth is made bright with his glory. He has great authority. Verse 2, he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now, if you have a cross-reference in your Bible, you'd go back to Revelation 14, 8. You see that? Revelation 14 gives you a similar testimony that happens uh, from that second angel who's flying in heaven. 14.8 says this. I'll just read it to you. You don't need to turn. Another angel, a second, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. That has been the theme that this central location on the planet is the one uh, through whom all economic and false teaching flows. This is the head of the viper, as it will. Now watch what this angel says. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. A haunt is, the Greek word means a prison sometimes, and it sometimes means a watchtower. So in essence, what you have here is a, a, a gathering together of everything unclean, of every demonic influence, all centered and empowered in this last one world city. And it's as if God looks down from heaven upon the thing that is going to be incredibly attractive to all humankind, to all of those who live on the earth. And God's definition of this city is going to be far different than mankind's definition of this city. The way God sees it is a coalition of demons and unclean birds and unclean beasts all concentrated in a single location. But for mankind, it's going to be uh, the devil's playground. It's going to give mankind every single possible thing he could want for a fulfilled life on this planet without God. Verse 3, here's the why. Why is this a concentration of evil? Why is this a a place of uncleanness and demonic activity? It's in verse 3. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. That this city, probably a literal city, has such international influence that there are cities of influence throughout our world right now, that the Tokyos and the New Yorks and the Washington DCs, this city will dwarf them all when it comes to influence. It will be the center of the Antichrist world power and world economic commercial engine of the day. And it will influence everywhere. How will they influence? They're drunk again with the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And we said last week that this drinking of wine has to do with complete control. That they're under the control of this world power. This this singular city that influences all of the nations all over the planet. Not only that, the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. That those who lead throughout the nations in the world powers have now aligned themselves with this great last city. That they have their influence, their political power and control to be informed by the false teaching of the day. Now, is, is there false teaching out there that says, if you believe this, remember the third temptation that Satan brings to Jesus? He says, if you fall down and worship me, all of these kingdoms will be yours because they've been delivered to me and I give, to them, who, give them to whom I will. That all throughout the Bible, this idea of political power and authority and strength and significance is always tied 
to a false belief system. Belief systems are great when they call me not to change and they secure my political position and power. Would you agree? I like believing in those things that make sure that I maintain security, control, comfort, power, authority, all of that. Well, all of that is what is given to the kings of the earth. Number three, the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Satan's kingdom, from the beginning pages of your Bible in Genesis 3, the Genesis 3 temptation that Satan brings to Adam and Eve is tempting because it's tempting. You with me? It's tempting because it appeals to something that mankind wants. Temptations are not that powerful and that effective if they come to me with things that I don't want. Would you agree with that? The worst temptations in my life appeal to the things that I want the most. That's where the, the sanctification and the sandpaper in my soul happens. It's when opportunity and desire come together in the form of temptation. And Satan is a pro. Because Satan now offers false teaching that secures political power, strength, authority, influence, and massive worldly wealth. This is going to be the most economically successful place in the history of the world. Now remember we talked about the mark of the beast? That the mark of the beast had to do with two things, worship and wealth. And they're brought right together so that you can be successful if you get the mark. It's not like the mark of the beast is going to allow you to make $25,000 a year and have a studio apartment somewhere. The mark of the beast is going to promise massive luxury, security, economic fulfillment. And for you to live in such a way that you have every single thing your heart could desire. Is that a temptation to you? That's the temptation of the last days. That's the, the temptation in our hearts, isn't it, when we live life in this world, is that we feel the pull of the economy toward security and fulfillment and safety and certainty about our future. And all of that is going to show up in Revelation chapter 18. Now, another voice from heaven, not this angel, another voice from heaven, probably a, a voice of God, shows up here in Revelation 18.4. Look at 18.4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying this, come out of her, my people. Now, this is important as we talk about this and all, as we get to the end of our message today, I'm gonna to talk about this. This is, this is a, an incredibly important statement that in the midst of people who are giving their lives for belief in Jesus Christ, there are people on, this, on the planet at this time who are being wooed 
by security and comfort and peace and economic fulfillment. You mean I don't have to live in poverty and I don't have to live hungry and I don't have to live on the run for my faith that I can now get a little bit closer and closer to this city that will provide security and safety for me in the last days when the wrath of God is raining down all over? And you read this in what we're about to see and it almost feels like it's in little bitty font, doesn't it? That there's this invitation from heaven itself that says, come out. Come out of this place. Come out of uh, what looks like security and safety and comfort and economic freedom and luxury and joy and fulfillment and, and come out of the city. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Now, if you have a, a cross-reference in your Bible here, you may have Jeremiah 51. Do you see that? All through this passage, you're going to have Ezekiel, Isaiah, Zephaniah, um, Jeremiah, all of these places throughout the Bible, especially in the prophetic literature, that talk about the contrast of God's people and the kingdoms and the powers of the day. And the kingdoms and powers of the day, especially in Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, have themes that are going to show up here. Only they're going to be amplified much, much more greatly that these world powers that we look back on in our archaeological digs, places like Tyre and Babylon and the Persian kingdoms and the, uh, all of these sort of Wikipedia pages of history were at one time at the height of their power and will one day be ultimately re-realized in this Babylonian center of the Antichrist power. And here's this invitation from heaven itself to come out of her. And in Jeremiah 51, God is speaking to his people saying, come out of this city. Come out of this place. You don't want to share in the plagues that are now going to fall upon Babylon. And the ultimate last days Babylon here show up in the plagues. Remember what the plagues were? In Revelation 16, the seven angels who had the seven bowls, which were the last plagues of God that now this city is about to be turned into a parking lot. What, what happens here actually happened uh, somewhat, this is a, uh, somewhat of a forward-looking chapter about what has just happened in Revelation 16. Go back to 16 real, 16 real quick in the last uh, tr trumpet, I'm sorry, the last bowl. Look at uh, 1617. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. God is going to take this city, crush this, the national powers of the day, and split this city into three. And he's telling his people, come out. Don't share in the plagues that are about to happen. And this is, I think, instructive for us, is that we need to recognize that during our time on the planet, proximity to the world system can get us in trouble. Would you agree with that? That all through the New Testament, there are these warnings against worldliness. This book began 
with the letter to Laodicea that said you're neither cold nor hot, which means you're useful for nothing, and I want to spit you out of my mouth. And what was the city, what was the, the church's self-assessment? That I have become rich and I am in need of nothing, not realizing that you are pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That worldliness to a church is incredibly dangerous. And the reason this chapter is here is to demonstrate to all of us that our alliance with the world economic system of the day will one day result in the complete destruction of what now is in total control of Satan himself. Now, let me show you this. Jesus talks about this. Keep your finger here and turn to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Jesus talks about these last days in his last few chapters of the book of Luke here when he's talking about the coming of the kingdom. Look at what he says in Luke 17, 26. He talks about being rejected by the, his generation there that will lead to his crucifixion. In Luke 17, 26, he says this, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. What will be happening as the wrath of God is falling on humanity during the last days? People will still be getting married, going about their business, going about their economic plans and dreams and desires of all the things that they desire to do. Now, he gives you that illustration with Noah, then he takes you to Sodom and Gomorrah and he talks to you about Lot. Look at what verse 28 says. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Watch this. On that day, let the one who is in the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. Now that seems to be a weird thing for Jesus to say, doesn't it? When you see destruction falling everywhere, don't run downstairs and grab the Cuisinart. Why would he say that? Unless he recognizes the temptation that is happening to the people on earth in Revelation chapter 18. He recognizes our, our hearts are attracted to things on this planet. Our hearts are tied to and look to for their security and their economic strength with things in this world. And he says, so it will be in the last days. There will still be people whose hearts are drawn to what this last kingdom can provide for them. Verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Well, why does Jesus say that? Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed by fire and they're on their way out with Lot and his wife and his two daughters. And what does Lot's wife do? She stops, she pauses, she looks, and she longs for what was her security and safety and well-being. And she's destroyed, turned into a pillar of salt. Jesus says, be aware, because even in the last days, mankind's heart will be the same. Now, come back to Revelation with me. 
Revelation 18, verse 4 again. Then I heard another voice from, he- from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Verse 5, for her sins are heaped as high as heaven. Remember what the desire of the Tower of Babel was? Let us build a city with a tower whose height reaches to the heavens. The idea of heaping is a word that's used of, of uh, two things clinging together and touching. It's as if God looks down in this last day kingdom and says, their sins have reached the limit of my patience. And God has remembered her iniquity. His patience is done. His response is now about to follow. Judgment is at hand. Verse 6, pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup that she mixed. That idea is throughout the Old Testament has to do with a full and complete repayment. A lot of times thieves, if they stole something, if they were caught, had to pay back double. That it was full restitution for what they had stolen. Verse 7, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury. Now watch this. God now sees through the economic success of the day. He sees through the commercial empire of the Antichrist and he looks into her heart. Now is having lots of stuff sinful? No. But how your heart responds to having lots of stuff can get you in trouble. Would you agree? So here are the reasons why the Babylonian empire of the Antichrist is destroyed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury. Everything about this kingdom satisfies the kingdom. That the kingdom, is it's a self-fulfilling circular argument. When you live for your glory and your passion and your desire, everything you do, every opportunity you have is turned into a self-focused so I can increase my glory, my influence, my power, my economic success, my 401k, my savings account, my toys, my joy, my comfort, my luxury. And this entire city operates like that. That's the gasoline of this engine, is in self-glory and pride. Is pride in the scriptures ever a problem? Does that ever show up as something that, I don't know, God hates? As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart, she says, this is a scary verse to me right here. That God sees the thoughts and the intents of our heart. Do you believe that? That God can see what's going on as your heart operates in a sinful world system. He can see the motivations and the implications and the manipulations of our heart that shift and move opportunities toward our benefit and our comfort and our self-glory. And he looks into the heart of this city and says, she says this, I sit as a queen. Now I have lots of little girls. From time to time, my little girls play dress up. And in the midst of dress up, they dress up like queens. And the game changes when you deal with a queen. Would you agree? Now when you deal with a queen, you start acting differently. That now there's a power structure involved. There's royalty that you are dealing with. And now you need to do what the queen says. You know, royalty all the way through this book is either usurped or um, authentic. You know that? That the beast wears what? 
on his head. He wears a crown. That Jesus himself returns in a royal crown. So that this idea of royalty has to do with how we see ourselves. There's not one thing greater that deceives us than being financially and commercially successful. It deceives us so much that we can start to think that we are in fact untouchable royalty. What happens to royals in a kingdom? They are deferred to, they are worshiped, they are exalted, they are seen as important, and they are seen as a standard of all things. And here is this city who says in her heart, I sit as a queen, I am no widow. Widows were easily taken advantage of. They had no protection whatsoever. But this city says, I am no widow. I will never be vulnerable. I will always be in control and in power and in authority. And she finishes saying, mourning I shall never see. Do you feel this temptation? Which one of us doesn't want security, safety, comfort, peace, certainty about our future? And there's nothing like material wealth to lie to us that says you won't see mourning. You have more than enough in savings to last for years. That this will never dry up. And it lies to us just as it lies in this city saying that there, you'll never see a horizon of destruction. And now what has been prophesied to this, this city is torment and mourning. Verse 8, for this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine. She will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. The refrain through the book of Revelation has been, who is like the beast and who can fight against him? And here, the only one who has the authority and strength to dismantle the economic system under control of the Antichrist is the Lord himself. Amen? That he can break the broken, sinful, oppressive, persecuting world economic system like that. Now, what follows? Have you noticed, do you have in your Bible as you look at this, does this chapter look like a psalm to you? that there's a, there's a shift in the way the text looks. It looks like a song. And it's a, it's a funeral song, essentially. It's a song of massive sadness, massive warning, uh, mourning. And what follows now as the promise of the mighty Lord destroys this economic empire and he crushes the head what you're going to see in the next several stanzas are those who benefited and profited from this world system. You're going to see three of them, all write songs of sadness, all write songs of mourning and weeping. Here's your first group. Look at verse 9. The kings of the earth who committed sexual morality and lived in luxury with her. There's that uniting of false theology along with opportunity, uh, financial, commercial, political power opportunity brought right together in these kings of the world. 
The kings of the earth who committed sexual morality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Verse 10, they will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon. For in a single hour, your judgment has come. What was it just said about the Lord? That he was mighty? What did they say about this city? That it was mighty. It came face to face with the one who was truly mighty. These kings of the day mourn their loss of political power and influence. And you see how they're not trying to save the city. Where do they stand? Far off. Going, man, it got bad for those people over there. I don't want any of that. Here's your next group in verse 11. The merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Verse 12, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, and chariots. And slaves, that is human souls. That there is, this economic world power has its fingers in every single area of commerce. Human trafficking, we've got it. Chefs and bakeries, we've got that too. Uh, granite countertops, we can get you that. We can get you the finest of foods, the finest of homes, the finest of what the world has to offer that we can get you slaves if you would like them. We can meet your every single desire that you have. And now the merchants of the world who watch their economic profits begin to tank recognize that it's the result of this city being destroyed. Verse 14, the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand where? Far off, in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud, saying the same thing that the kings did. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. That the kings mourn the loss of their power, the merchants mourn the loss of their wealth. Here's your third group, those who work in logistics and have now taken Babylon's wealth all over the world. All the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea stood where? Far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? That God in his wrath through the seventh bowl has now taken this world power and he's turned it not into the place of all political power, success, wealth, and luxury. He has turned it into a memory. That he has broken it in half and now in the minds of those who once took the trade and the commerce of the day all around the world, they say, what city was like it? You know, the great city, we've said, I said this a couple weeks ago, but the great city was first coined by Nebuchadnezzar. When he talks about, is not this great Babylon whom I have created for my glory and my power? And it's if God takes that 
desire in humankind, to have a place where we are not forgotten, where our names are remembered and we have political power and strength and economic success. And he says, I wipe it off the planet. No more. Verse 19, and they threw dust on their heads, a sign of mourning and regret and sadness as they wept and they mourned, crying out, alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she had been laid waste. Do you see this? Have you seen the repetition of a phrase, single? The king said in a single day, the seafarers and the merchants have said in a single hour it came and it was gone. This is the greatest stock market collapse in the history of the world. The wealth is destroyed. You remember um, Jesus tells a parable about the rich man who says, my barns are too small. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to create bigger barns because I've got lots of time and lots of joy ahead of me in my life. I'll create bigger barns and I'll sell to my soul. Soul, live it up. And it's the only parable where God calls somebody a fool to their face. And God says to this man, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you. Then whose will these things be? In one hour, all of his hope for his future, all of his security, all of his economic success is brought to nothing. You remember um, in Daniel chapter 5, there's a a son of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar learns his lesson, as it were, and then he has a son who takes over, and the son brings all the gold, all of the cups, and all of the uh, items from the sanctuary that they've taken from the city of Israel. And he starts, and he has a drinking party. And in the midst of that drinking party, a hand shows up on the wall and says, you've been weighed in the balances found wanting, Right? And it says, the kingdom has been taken from you. And it says, it goes on in Daniel 5 to say, that very night, his life was taken. And it, the kingdom was handed over to Darius the Mede. God brings the Babylonian empire to a close in a single hour. And the same thing happens here. That he will end this place in a single moment. Now, you've got, another, you've got a fourth group of people who respond in this sadness psalm much differently. Look at verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Now that seems kind of strange in the middle of this psalm. You know the last time heaven was told to rejoice? It was back in Revelation chapter 12. When the accuser of the brethren was thrown down. And it was commanded in Revelation 12, rejoice, O heavens, but woe to you, O earth, because the devil has come down in great fury. So we rejoice that heaven has been cleansed from the accuser's influence, and now heaven rejoices that his world power and his domination and his economic success has been brought to nothing. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, those who have been God's people throughout the Old Testament and New Testament ages, for God has given judgment for you against her. God has vindicated those who have put their faith in him and not the world powers of the day. And that the judgment of this world power is also the affirmation and the vindication of his people who've trusted him.
You have one final dramatic gesture in this passage in verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone, like a great millstone. Millstones are like four or five feet round and about a foot thick. They're thousands of pounds. They're not small things. This angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Now, it no longer will have a name. It will go from incredible world power to a memory, and it will be gone. Now watch this, verse 22. The sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. That music is gone. That art is gone. The sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. We have no more chefs and no more bakers and no more agriculture. That is gone. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. There is no more light from this city providing uh, ways in which I ought to live my life. Information that I ought to live my life by the truths of this false empire. No more light will shine in you anymore. The voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. The most intimate relationships that we can have on this planet, no more will they be found in this place. This is a precursor to what ultimately will be the horrors of hell. That in hell there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is no intimacy. There is no light. There is no joy. There's no peace. There's no comfort whatsoever. There's no art or music or beauty. It is all wiped out. It is all removed that mankind who refuses to bow the knee to God, refuses to listen to the words and the appeal and the invitation of come out of her, of repent and give God glory, Mankind will refuse and will face now an eternity of darkness and pain and horror. Here's why. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. They had a position. They had wealth. They had authority. They had influence. And all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. They had international acclaim and approval because of the message of false theology that had been propagated by demons and the false prophet and the preaching of the day that says worship the Antichrist. Verse 24, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who had been slain on the earth. For those who follow God in these last days, this will be a, a kingdom of torment and persecution and oppression. For those who follow the Antichrist and the beast of these last days, they will gain the heart, their heart's desire, every earthly blessing they will finally have, and then they ultimately will be exposed and destroyed. That's a dark chapter, isn't it? So, this chapter shows us some things about ourselves that I think it's important that we take note of. One, it's that economic success blinds us. 
material wealth has a tendency to cause us to not see our days appropriately, to presume that because we are financially successful and wealthy and secure that it will always be that way because of what we have. That it causes us to see ourselves as royalty when in reality, like the church at Laodicea, we are pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So it blinds us to the true reality of who we are before the Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth. Number two, it deceives us. This chapter, if you were to summarize it, is all about sadness. But it's all about sadness over the wrong things, isn't it? Everybody is sad that they've lost their hope. Everybody's sad that they've lost their profit. Everybody's sad that they've lost their business. Nobody is sad for sin. Nobody is sad that they've crossed God himself. Nobody is sad about the oppression and the persecution and the manipulation and the false theology of the day that allows them to live the life of luxury that they so want and desire. So not only are we blinded about ourselves, we're blinded about the economics around us in the day. Number three, I think it's clear that worldliness weakens the church. Wouldn't you agree? That this is all around the New Testament. This is 1 John 2. Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Paul in 2 Timothy says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. James says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So the question when I read Revelation chapter 18, this is the thing that I've been meditating on all week, is over the last six months, if I think about my life, how much have I been investing in things that bring me safety and security and comfort in the world and not things that stoke my heart for heaven? Isn't that the question? That we look at the end of all of what the world and where the world is headed under the control of Satan himself and we would miss the point of this chapter if we did not begin to examine in our own hearts where we really find our safety and our security, where we really find our identity and our hope and our comfort. Because this chapter is here to tell you that you will not find it on the earth. I don't care how successful and how economically um, fulfilled you are. No matter how much money is in the bank or how much you are able to live for your comfort and your luxury and the joy of what you can purchase with money, it will not fulfill you because this place is not your home. I want to show you this from Hebrews as we close. Turn back to Hebrews 11. Now, if you've read 
you know, if I, when I say Hebrews 11, many of you are thinking to yourself, oh, it's the chapter about faith. It's the, the story of those who, who lived their lives with the eyes on the prize, who understood that their life was not here. But I want to show you this so that you see it from the life of Abraham. Because Abraham was a sojourner on the earth. He owned a grave plot in a cave when he died. The thing that makes me nervous, I don't care how much money you have. I care this much about how much money you have. I care about whether or not your heart is invested in this world. Whether as you make decisions about your life and about your plans and about your future that you would secretly or deceptively begin to buy the lie that you are who you are because of what you have. And there's really only two ways for you to discover the temptation to greed in your heart. This chapter makes it very, very clear that one important way that you discover greed in your heart is because of loss. Is that when you lose the thing on this planet that has been your hope, you are devastated. And the other way you can begin to go to war with greed in your heart and actually see that your heart is too tied to things here on this planet is through generosity. It's when you begin to make financial decisions to invest in uh, what Jesus calls, um, don't store up your treasures on earth, but uh, store them up in heaven where moth nor rust uh, destroy, right? And thieves don't break in and steal. It's where you're investing because where your money is, there your what is? Your heart. There your heart is. Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Abraham leaves his family, leaves security, and goes to a place where he will receive an inheritance. When do you get an inheritance? When you what? When you die. Did he receive the inheritance? No. He's got a gravestone where his wife is buried. That's all he got. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Don't you like knowing where you're going? Anybody bad with directions like me? This happens to me a lot. I don't know where I'm going. Here's Abraham, leaving a place of security and safety and comfort, going to a place that he doesn't have directions to. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Let me make a church point. You need to gather with the body of Christ to be reminded that there are other people on this planet whose hope is not this planet. You need to be reminded that what Jesus has done for you guarantees an inheritance in heaven that is imperishable and undefiled and you need other people reminding you of that. And here's Abraham with Isaac and Jacob who are looking forward to God being faithful to his promise. Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And he talks about Sarah, and then pick it up in verse 13. These all died in what? Verse 13, they all died in? Faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, 
And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, they did not say, I am a queen. I will never see mourning. I will never see widowhood. My life is secure forever and always. The people of faith always see themselves differently than the people of the flesh. They understand that they are passing through. They understand what Psalm 73 says. On earth, God is nothing that I desire. Is that happening in your Christian life? The longer you walk with Jesus, are your heart stoked for seeing him and being with him and finding your hope and security in what only he has done for you? That's what a life of faith does. A life of faith creates not just ideological distance from the world, but there are some places Christians ought not be, that we ought to be distinct and unique from what is happening in the world. And I recognize this in my own heart, that I would like there to be more safety, security, and fulfillment on the planet rather than safety, security, and fulfillment in Jesus. And here's Abraham living this out. Verse 14, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. What comes out of our mouths as Christians is the tenor and the tone of our conversations with each other. My hope is not here. My hope is there. My joy and fulfillment is not here. And in the next home or the next thing I buy or the next season of my career and vocation, but that my homeland is not here. I'm not from around here and I'm not staying here. I am going somewhere that is home. If nothing else, the invitation in Revelation chapter 18 to come out of her, my people, is an invitation for you and for me to come home. How many of you grew up in a home that didn't have a lot of money? But it was home. You remember that? It had nothing to do with money. I mean, money's nice. Don't get me wrong. I got six babies to feed. We need some money. But our house and our home is different, right? That what happens in this invitation in Revelation chapter 18 to you and to me who who have this tendency to find our hope and our fulfillment through the things that we have and the, the money we make and the future that we think we're going to secure is really this invitation to come home. To come into the one relationship that can give me identity and purpose and fulfillment and a sweetness and a depth of knowing my heavenly father because of what Jesus has done. So this chapter exposes us, but it also invites us to come home. If they had been thinking of that land which way they had gone out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. Amen? That there's a better country, a better place than here for you and me. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You got a cross-reference in that last verse, John 14? I'm going to call our band up. We're going to close here in a minute, but 
There's one cross-reference at the end there. For he's prepared for them a city. It's John 14. John 14 reads like this. It's, it's Jesus' last words to his disciples. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This is the great promise of a life with Jesus. That for those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ, to forgive our sins and for Jesus to be the one way and truth and life to bring us one day to the Father is the promise that we live under, that Jesus will one day bring us home. And in the midst of the wrath of God falling in Revelation chapter 18, the invitation that I would say to you is what Jesus invites you to here, is to come out of all of these places that characterize a sinful world characterized by the control of Satan, where you would find your security and your safety and comfort and economic fulfillment, and that you would come home to an intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Father, we need to be reminded of how often our hearts are tied to life in this world. Father, as we think and struggle through the ways in which our economics and the decisions that we make speak to our hearts that so often are deceived with thinking that our identity and our hope and our future are somehow here, would you disentangle our hearts from that deception? Would we be people of, of generosity who are ready and willing to share the things that you've put in our hands because we have a far better promise of a hope and a life with you? Father, would our hearts not be too invested here? And would we live in light of the day where we get to see you face to face and that we would come home? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.